freedom come together so that citizens in our county can achieve the American dream. The Local Edition on Radio Catskill. From the WJFF studios in Liberty, New York, this is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. On today's show, the student journalists of Manor, Inc. Today, Zoe McGee brings us her interview with Ali Abate, the new executive director of the Catskill Fly Fishing Center and Museum. Composting from his podcast, Close to Home, Leif Johansson breaks down our local composting efforts. He speaks to Thompson Sanitation owner Chrissy Walsh, Delaware County Solid Waste Coordinator Tyson Robb, and Sullivan County Recycling Coordinator Cassie Thelman about the science, economics, and politics of organics disposal in our communities. But first, the news from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. In Northern California, another severe winter storm is barreling into the region. The northern Sierra Nevada mountains could see another two to six feet of new snow, creating extremely hazardous road conditions, as NPR's Eric Westervelt reports. This powerful storm follows ones that dumped more than eight feet of snow in the last week alone. Seasonal snow totals in the Sierras are now above 42 feet, the most on record through February. National Weather Service meteorologist Scott Rowe says this latest storm will make weekend travel conditions treacherous. With periods of heavy snow impacting all of the Sierra Nevada, this will lead to hazardous road conditions becoming possibly impossible or uh, very difficult through much of the weekend with multiple feet of snow expected. According to the U.S. Drought Monitor, the series of powerful rain and snowstorms that have hit California since December have freed about half the state from drought. But groundwater levels remain low and may take months more to recover. Eric Westervelt, NPR News. In Southern California, residents of mountain communities have been stranded for days because of that record-breaking snowfall. And now the sheriff in San Bernardino County is warning they could be stuck for another week. A large storm system also bringing heavy snow to the northeast. With Russian artillery reported to be pounding the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut today, Attorney General Merrick Garland is throwing his support behind efforts to hold Russia accountable for war crimes. Garland made an unannounced visit to Ukraine on Friday, as NPR's Kerry Johnson reports. He met with Ukraine's president and its prosecutor general and with other foreign counterparts from Europe. Merrick Garland has signed a deal to share information with all of them about atrocities that Russia's committed in Ukraine. Everything from bombing maternity hospitals and abducting Ukrainian children to targeting civilians. The meetings Garland attended were held in the city of Lviv as Russian forces are attempting to encircle Bakhmut. Three Hong Kong activists have been convicted after they refused to cooperate with national security policy. They were arrested in 2021 during a crackdown on Hong Kong's civil society sector following the passage of a wide-ranging national security laws. NPR's Emily Fang reports. The three activists now face up to six months in prison and a fine of nearly $13,000. They said they didn't cooperate because they believed the state had arbitrarily designated them foreign agents without providing evidence. They were the organizers of a now-disbanded movement best known for holding annual vigils to commemorate the victims of the Tiananmen Massacre in Beijing. That incident in 1989 saw Chinese troops fire on their own citizens, killing thousands, though the exact death toll is unknown and mentions of the massacre are heavily censored in mainland China. One of the activists, Chao Hongtong, was arrested on a separate national security charge of subversion in 2021 and is already in prison. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei, Taiwan. And this is NPR. India has maintained ties with Russia despite the invasion of Ukraine. So when India hosted a gathering this past week of diplomats from the G20 major economies, it invited Russia's foreign minister. And that made for some awkward exchanges among diplomats. As NPR's Lauren Freyer reports from Mumbai. In a Q&A on stage at a think tank dialogue in New Delhi, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov got applause when he accused the West of a double standard for invading Iraq and Afghanistan but criticizing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But when Lavrov said the war was launched against Russia and that Russia was trying to defend itself... You know, uh, the war uh, which uh, we are trying to stop and which was launched against us using the Ukraine, <laughs> U- Ukrainian people, uh, 
the audience of academics, diplomats and business executives laughed and groaned. Lavrov also held a 10-minute meeting in Delhi with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, their first face-to-face since the Ukraine war began. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Mumbai. With parts of California getting more snow this weekend, a large storm system has moved into the northeast, threatening heavy snow and coastal flooding. After killing at least nine people in the south, where homes and businesses were damaged, most of the power outages are in Michigan, Kentucky, and Tennessee. Alaska's Iditarod Sled Dog Race gets underway this weekend. It begins with a ceremonial start today in Anchorage. The field is the smallest in the race's 50-year history. 33 mushers and their dog teams are participating. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Manor, Inc. is the youth-driven, community-supported monthly newspaper published by the Livingston Manor Free Library. And at the first of every month, we bring you some of their stories. And uh, we had been having them in studio, but uh, wisely, uh, the students decided to stay in today. We do have Zoe McGee, though, joining us on the phone. Zoe, good morning. Hi. Hi. <laughs> yeah, you decided to to not brave the, the kind of sleet uh, and ice that was happening this morning, right? Yeah, it's uh, pretty bad out there. It's not so great. Uh, uh, let's talk about your story in this issue of Manor, Inc., which is out now. Uh, it, the headline is is great. CFFCM hooks a new director. Um, what, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, so over the summer of 2022, the Catskill Fly Fishing Center Museum hired a new executive director. Her name is Ali Abadi, and she is very excited to bring her knowledge and expertise to the center. Yeah, and you got to talk. Um, you got to talk to her. Did you go to the center to do that? Yeah. And uh, the, there's some interesting things in the interview, uh, and we're going to listen to that now. Um, and I thought you did a really good job. Let's play the interview, and then we'll talk a little bit about it uh, more about it afterward. All right. Okay. All right, here's Zoe McGee interviewing the new Catskill Fly Fishing Center and Museum Director, Alexander or Ali Abate. What is the Catskill Fly Fishing Center and Museum? <laughs> um, it's an interesting place that I think has a lot of different assets and meanings depending on who you ask, but essentially it's a nonprofit in Livingston Manor that interprets and preserves and provides storytelling about the heritage of the birthplace of fly fishing in this area. Um, We've got a campus that's over 50 acres of beautiful space and trails and access to the Willowy Mock River, Um, a museum which includes our exhibits but also has archives underneath it that is really just like a treasure trove of all different kinds of things about fly fishing related to tackle, art, books. I can get more into that. Um, And then we also have the Wolf Gallery, which is a multi-use space that is an event space and sort of also a a classroom and meeting room. It really is used in a lot of ways. And then beneath that building is a rod making, an active rod making workshop that both displays um, different kinds of equipment that we have, some heritage and historic equipment that's been donated to us, and also is used actively to build bamboo rods for fly fishing. So there's a lot here. A lot going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have any plans to improve this place? And what are those plans? If there are? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think what's really cool about this place is that, first of all, that it's so very beautiful and here in a space that is a beautiful part of the world and part of the country to live in. But the space itself, I think, is just that's what struck me the first time I came here in person. Um, so part of what I definitely want to do is, is to share that with more people. Um, that's a big piece generally. And then I think, you know, sort of digging into what our mission is and what we're trying to do as an organization, we do so much and it's so incredible, but at the same time, I don't know if enough people really know about what we do and there's so many different ways to kind of leverage that. So I'm hoping to 
like I said, let more people know that we're here and what we do um, and really also grow and expand some of our programmings that we're reaching more people. And that could be in the form of educational programs for youth, which we've started, but we're looking to keep expanding upon Um, more programs for adults and just families, people that are either living in the area or visiting the area. Um, And then more different, you know, different kinds of diverse events so that we utilize our space. And, And again, just get it into use, get it into the community's, um, vision, I guess, so that people are aware that we're here and um, just be an asset in a larger capacity. That sounds awesome. Yeah. No, it's exciting. <laughs> um, and now a little bit about your background. You worked at the Queens County Farm Museum, right? Yeah, I was there for um, nine years as a director of education um, and inherited a, a pretty bustling and vibrant school education program that was doing field trips at the site. And the Queen's Farm, similar to this space, is about 47 acres, so similar size of land, um, and is a historic site, which is a little different than us. We interpret history here, but it's not as if an historic event related to fly fishing occurred on this property per se, Um, but definitely related and also a cultural site and a, a public space. Many, many people, because it was in New York City, came and used the space. It's a working farm, an open space. It's part of parks. Um, So there's a lot of crossover between that and this. um, And that job really was a lot of fun because it allowed me to learn how to design educational programs, expand them, improve them. We created an entire adult education model that they're still using um, to bring in the programming that they were doing, but apply it to adults because they were really mostly only doing it with children at the time that I started. So that experience will help you with this new position. Definitely, definitely. There's a lot of crossover, so it's been it's been helpful to lean on that. <laughs> okay. Um, what other background do you have? Like other jobs or experiences? Yeah. So I think my background's kind of unique. I didn't really have a direct path to get to this point. Um, I studied psychology and other sort of arts-related things um, as an undergrad. I was really interested in dance and choreography in college um, and didn't really know exactly what I was going to do with it when I graduated. I left school and got a teaching job working with preschool students that had special needs because it was kind of the easiest way to immediately start working with people with a psychology degree that was just a bachelor's because I didn't have an advanced degree, obviously, coming right out of school. And I spent a few years doing that to kind of figure out, well, what else do I want to learn or study? And I really didn't know. And I pretty quickly was like, oh, teaching in the classroom is like not where I want to be. <laughs> um, and so I eventually ended up pursuing social work school, which in my mind, and I think has proven to be a really cool and flexible degree that kind of gave me skills that were very um, generalizable so that I knew I could work with different populations in different ways. Um, So I studied clinical work doing kind of like therapy with people, but also studied programming, how to design programs that would serve people and really help people. Um, And then I used that for a handful of jobs that I had before my previous job, which were all kind of in the field of working with people, doing after-school programming, I'm trying to think of all the things I've done, but um, basically all really in in that world of of figuring out the best ways to create something to serve people. And ideally in a way that was fun and interactive and in person most of the time. Okay. Do you live in Livingston Manor? So I'm a part-timer in Livingston Manor. I'm here part of the week and I also live in Brooklyn part of the week. And how long have you lived part-time in Livingston Manor? Just since July. (laughs) So I, it's interesting, I first started coming up here in college because I had a friend who had parents had a home in the area, so that's how I first kind of knew about the place. Never really imagined I would necessarily move here or come back here, but she relocated back to the area, and so I started coming up from the city to visit her. And then it was actually, she was the one who let me know that this position was opening because I had been looking around for a while and thinking about how do I move? What's my next step? I I think I want to stay a nonprofit. I think I'd like to be in something that has an environmental and educational focus. And so it was just finding the right fit Um, and had been looking at and interviewing at other places. And this just came along. Um, 
So finding a place up here, not easy to do. I actually live in a converted apartment that's just above where we're sitting right now. Oh, when okay. I'm here. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so I have a little home away from home right here on the campus, which is really, really, really nice. Um, and definitely a benefit to a person that didn't live in the area who was looking to come up. Um, and, you know, part of the reason of hiring someone that was also based in the city and has some experience down there is using that as an asset, too, that we can partner with organizations in the city, seek funding from various city partners, um, and ideally attract folks to come up as well for, you know, all kinds of different things, whether regular programs, one-off programs, just coming up to the museum for a weekend, Um so hopefully there'll be a lot that will come out of, of having a person that lives in two places. <laughs> um, is there anything since living here that you like specifically like about the area? Like, Yeah, I, I mean, I think a lot of things. It's It's been a little hard because I'm working to get out as much as I would like. But what's been fun now that I've been here consistently for about seven months, I guess it is now, is, you know, seeing familiar faces, knowing more people around town, um, Obviously, most of the time I'm talking about the center and trying to get people invested in, in this place, but that brings a lot of fun social activity, too, because I get to meet business owners and, you know, a lot of them are anglers or interested in fishing. Um, so it's not terribly hard to get them excited about what we're doing here. And maybe they already are into it. So it's really just been a nice way to get to know different people and kind of see what's going on and, and, and folks that have been here a long, long time and people that are newer to the area as well so just meeting new people having having friends in a different part of the state has been really fun do you have any experience with fly fishing <laughs> so i don't um i mean part of bringing yet you to, yeah yet i have been fishing since i've been here and i plan to do more um you know part of my coming on was really being a person who had a strong nonprofit background and having worked at Queens Farm for as long as I did and other, even actually much larger organizations, I worked for a place called Partnership with Children and another place called Big Brothers Big Sisters, which I think a lot of people are familiar with, which are large and in some cases national organizations. It was really thinking that, you know, I could kind of bring some of that expertise to this place and sort of revamp, rethink, restructure things in a way that will obviously and ideally bring us to a new level and kind of into the future and, and connected to younger generations and people that may not realize that we're here. Um, so what that's meant for me is really leaning on the knowledge and expertise of the folks that are involved in the center already. And that's in the form of our volunteers, our visitors, our members, our board members, who many of them are dedicated anglers, love fishing, love all the different aspects that it brings, you know, being out in nature, having the opportunity to connect with these beautiful places, involvement in conservation and preserving the area and our rivers. Um, and then also that the art aspect of it, the fact that you've got people who can build these beautiful bamboo rods and tie flies and getting into that stuff has been really fun because it's literally something I like didn't know existed <laughs> at all. Um, <laughs> And people are kind of like, well, how can you work there and not have that? And it's like, well, I don't need to have that. That's something I can use and learn from the other people who are here who do have that knowledge. And I bring a different knowledge to the table. Um, but it has been fun. And it's fun to fly fish. It is not easy. I don't know if I will ever be good at it. <laughs> but it's a cool thing to learn about. It's beautiful to watch. Um, and that's been another fun thing about coming up to the area is just seeing people out fishing when it's not as cold as it is right now, even though it's kind of unseasonably warm today. Um, it's just fun to catch people doing their thing in the river, so, or rivers. So what are your hobbies then, like, outside of work? Um, I like to hike and walk and be outside. Um, I love just yoga and anything that kind of gets me active. I, I was a swimmer growing up. I like to run. Um, exercise, I think, is a big part of, of for, like, downtime for me and relaxation for me. Um, I'm also a big cooker and baker. Um, and then another little hobby of mine is both, well, nature-based and certainly kind of came a lot out of working at the farm that I worked at for so many years, but, um, anything related to florals, flowers, arranging flowers, picking flowers, growing flowers. Um, and I'm also into foraging and being able to go out and identify plants and learn about trees and find mostly edible things that are growing out in the wild that can be made into teas or, you know, even things like mushrooms or other things that you can cook up for dinner, um, so I love that kind of stuff. So definitely a lot of nature-based sorts of things. 
and so time in the kitchen. <laughs> you really like the outdoors. I do. I do. Yeah, um, definitely. And that is student journalist Zoe McGee from Manor Inc. and her interview with the new executive director of the Catskill Center Fly Fishing, Catskill Fly Fishing Museum and Center. And she's on the phone with us now, Zoe. Uh, that was a good, good conversation. And I thought it was interesting that she doesn't have any fly fishing background, but she's, she's now the executive director there. Yeah. Well, she has background in nonprofit organizations and social work and teaching. So, She's looking to bring that to the center, and she's working on learning how to fly fish, so I think she'll do a good job. <laughs> I think she will, too. It takes a lot to run a nonprofit. Uh, trust me. Uh, so, l- listen, I understand that you want to take up fly fishing as well. Did you uh, Have you st- have you done that yet, and are they going to offer more youth programs for fly fishing there? Uh, yes, they are going to offer more youth programs. That is one of Allie's goals is to create more youth educational programs and give them more opportunity to learn about fly fishing because there's not much around. And I'd be interested in doing that because I think it would be really cool to fly fish after going there. Yeah. There were just so many cool things, and it seems like a cool hobby. Yeah. Have you have you tried it yet? None yet. Okay. Well, it's, it's a little cold too. Maybe maybe when it's warmer. Um, also, yeah. <laughs> um, also in this issue, in addition to your your uh, great article about the Catskill uh, Fly Fishing Center and Museum, there's a cover story from Michelle um, Adams Thomas, who's the editor, about Chat GPT, about artificial intelligence. Um, can you tell folks a little bit about that? Yeah, ChatGDP, ChatGPT, sorry, is an online AI text generator launched by the American Nonprofit Artificial Intelligence Laboratory. It's an online program that allows users to generate text on any topic, written, any style, and yeah. Yeah, and and so there's a great article that that Michelle did, but then. Uh, your Mannering tech reporter, Jack Dusenberry Dalto, created a chat GPT generated article as a parallel to that. It's an article that was written by the chat GPT. It's a kind of a amazing, uh, thing. So you get to compare the two in this, in this article or in this, this issue. Yeah. And some of the other stories, uh, an exclusive story by reporter Aiden Dusenberry Dalto on the recent purchase of the North Branch Cidery by a couple from Livingston Manor. Uh, long closed, that popular cider mill will be re- reopening in the coming months. The social media editor Angie Hun shares her thoughts about the intellectual dangers of the internet, and that's a topic that's not related to the cover story, but kind of ties in a little bit. And Mia Moser uh, writes a, a, about a new community of homes being built in Chandelier, the Catskill Project. Offers offering passive houses that are built on the cutting edge of environmental construction. That's all in the current issue of Manor Inc. It's on newsstands now or online at manor-inc.org. Zoe McGee, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, it should, should, should warm up a little bit, I hope, and you get outside. Thanks so much. Yeah. We'll take a short break, and when we come back, composting close to home. This is Radio Chatskill. This is Ari Shapiro with NPR. If you've been thinking about helping this station with a contribution, but now is not the right time for a financial gift, you can donate a vehicle you don't need. Pickup is free, and it could be worth hundreds of dollars in support. Think about it. And thanks. We accept any vehicle, running or not, including cars, trucks, boats, RVs, motorcycles, and more. Donate at WJFFRadio.org. This week on Notes from America, how can we read history from a totally new perspective? So we think about these representative figures, these notable figures. So how does one write an account of a nameless figure? I'm Kai Wright. Join me for a conversation with cultural historian Saidia Hartman. Sunday evening at 6, live on Radio Catskill. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. 
About 60 million metric tons of food waste is generated just in the U.S. each year, amounting to about 30% of the total food supply, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Food makes up around 18% of all waste in New York alone. The global total is close to 1 billion metric tons. Today, that wasted food typically goes on to landfills where it decays and produces methane, a powerful greenhouse gas. Composting is a great way to keep food scraps from ending up in the landfill while delivering nutrient-rich soil in return. In his most recent episode of his WJFF podcast, Close to Home, Leif Johansson looks at composting and the status of our local composting efforts. He speaks to Thompson Sanitation owner Chrissy Walsh, Delaware County Solid Waste Coordinator Tyson Robb, and Sullivan County Recycling Coordinator Cassie Thelman about the science, economics, and politics of organics disposals in our community. A couple of weeks ago, I was chatting with Chrissy Walsh, the owner of Thompson Sanitation, the Sullivan County-based waste hauling company. I was asking her if there were any local or state subsidies offered for garbage removal companies, to which she replied that there are not, and when I followed up to ask what people did with their trash before companies like Thompson Sanitation serendipitously popped up in our area, this was her response. Yeah, I think back in the day, people burned. Um, There was also recycling facilities where you could get your, it's just like five cent bottles, right? You could go to a a facility and bring your aluminum cans, but people had burn barrels. People probably still do. I don't think they're supposed to, but, and more composting, you know, people would just ditch their stuff out in their yard. And, you know, that's a big part of our waste now is, is food. Right. So this ends up being an interesting foray into behavioral economics. Before you could pay a nominal fee to have your garbage and recycling picked up, People either brought their trash to the nearest transfer station, or they dealt with it themselves, with burning barrels and compost piles. Now, obviously, there is a wide body of well-established research on the harm to both our health and the environment from using burning barrels for our trash. But composting? There isn't anything wrong with that. And it would have been an activity that would have been incentivized by the lack of garbage haulers back in the day. Why? Because somewhere between 30 and 50% of our waste stream is organic material that doesn't need to go into landfills. And so much of that material can just be composted in our own backyards. So if it means less time schlepping our trash over to the transfer station, it makes sense that lots of people would choose to compost. But with the ease of garbage hauling services that can do weekly pickups right at your home, it's even easier for us not to compost. And that kind of checks out. Between 2010 and 2017, rates of composting in the U.S. didn't substantially increase. And from 2017 to 2018, they dropped by 2%. As long as it is more convenient for us not to compost, the reality is that most of us won't do it, even as our landfills are filling up. Now, obviously, I am not advocating for us to get rid of our trash hauling services. Those are both useful and also important to maintaining health and safety in our communities. But I do want to talk about composting today because we generate a mind-blowing amount of organic waste in the U.S. And perhaps you've seen this statistic before, that about 40% of the food we grow eventually gets thrown out. And according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that's true. So now more than ever, we need to see innovation in this sector. And if we get this right locally, we could stand to save a bunch of money and decrease our environmental impact while we're at it. But we'll get back to Sullivan County a little bit later in the program. First, I wanted to find a rural area that has already managed to innovate in the world of waste management. And it turns out, I didn't have to look very far. Yep, so our composter is uh, one of a kind in New York State so far. So they built this back in 2003, 2004. They built a large composting facility here in Delaware County. It's a a Comparec technology. There are other ones throughout the country and definitely throughout the world. Uh, We just happen to be the only one in New York State. That's Tyson Robb, the solid waste coordinator for Delaware County, New York. So this thing is 20 years old now. How is it that 
this is the only composting facility of its kind in New York State. Um, why is it the only one? I guess I'm I'm not sure. I mean, it was an expensive <laughs> operation to get off the ground um, in 2004. I think it was uh, 23 around 23 million, 24 million dollars in 2004 dollars. Um, so it takes quite a bit of money to to initiate one of these projects. And yeah, so it's it's segregating out the organics, you know, separating out your food waste and and anything that's compostable. So paper and you know those kind of things that don't make it through our recycling uh, facility. Um, the, those organics will be uh, separated, and so that our landfill doesn't does not receive much organics at all. Um, and that is a big push for New York State as they consider the climate impacts of methane and other gases that are generally produced from landfills. How do all of those organics get separated and put into this composting facility, even if they were initially combined with non-organics? And then once they're there, how does the composting facility actually work and break this down? Yeah, so what sets this facility aside is... um, a portion of the facility that we call the bioreactor. It's a large rotating drum. You know, it's like 14 feet around and some 160 feet long, maybe. And that is where the material initially enters the facility. And that is acting on a process known as accelerated fermentation. And so the material goes in there and it's rotated. It's agitated around in a in a somewhat soft manner there's no grinding or pulverizing of anything whereas if you look at some of the organic separators uh that are coming out more recently for food scrap separation and that kind of stuff they're they're really using mechanical abrasion to separate out the organics and then screens after that the bioreactor that we have is like i said it's accelerated fermentation the, the organics break down into small material relatively quickly you know, within three or four days. And then from there, uh, the process is similar to a lot of other composting facilities where we use trommels and screens and uh, magnets and various ways to uh, screen out other things that are not organics. How many people participate in this? I mean, is everyone necessarily participating in this composting just because they're throwing out organics and then they get separated out later down the, the road here? Yep, you got it. Uh, yeah, so everybody is participating. Uh, we have around around 50,000 residents. So the material that we take into the composting facility is common household garbage. Uh, so that would include, you know, things that you throw out in your kitchen and things that you throw out in your bathroom. So if you think about that waste, you know, maybe in the bathroom, there's a lot of toilet paper rolls and some kind of paper product that might have a coating on it. Similar in your kitchen, you might have paper plates, paper towels, chicken wing bones, things that you're not comfortable composting in your uh, home composting, uh, if you have one of those. So it's that material that we take into the into the front end of the facility and separate out those organics. It's around, it's about half of the material that's thrown away. I was reading an article in a Sullivan County newspaper from I think it was 2009 when a a number of representatives from Sullivan County government came up and visited the facility, the composting facility in Delaware County. And at the time, the representative from the facility said that although the system was working really well, there weren't a lot of people purchasing the finished compost at the end of the process. Now, this was obviously over 10 years ago. How is that looking today? Um, yeah, so it kind of comes and goes. Uh, probably our biggest cu- customer is DOT. Um, you know, so we work with private brokers, um, and, and soil blenders to facilitate, uh, large DOT projects. So as they're improving 88 and, you know, these different interstates, um, they're, they're looking for a certain organic content in the roadside areas to facilitate growth of plants and, you know, help with erosion control and that kind of stuff. So that's one of our largest customers for sure. What does the future of this program look like? A lot of maintenance, (laughs) you know, like you said, I mean, that's 20 years, uh, which has been a good run, Um, you know, and, and we're, we're keeping up on it. We're the way that it was structured is that they built the, they brought the, a lot of the equipment in and then built a building around that. 
So we do a lot of fabrication and a lot of maintenance. There's some some ways that we could improve maybe uh, some of the systems that were installed, but really we're entering a heavy maintenance period. Will the whole system have to shut down for a time during maintenance? Oh, we do. Yeah, we shut down every year. Um, just just routinely uh, for maintenance, we shut down for about a month. Hmm. Um, we work on some stuff that we can't work on when we're operational. Well, last year there was two shutdowns. This year there'll also be two shutdowns. Uh, we're resheathing part of the structure. That's one of the things, you know. Given that this is such a unique program in New York State, do you have any advice for counties that are interested in developing this sort of program down the road? It's all about public outreach, public education, you know, and then financing from there for one of these, if we were looking for a system that was this size. I mean, you can, I think a lot of the the concepts are scalable, like you can always start smaller. And there, and I think that, like you said, there's a lot of interest in New York State in, in food, food scrap uh, compost and, you know, removing the organics from landfills or preventing organics from getting into landfills. And that's good. But I think any of these systems are going to have to deal with some amount of packaging, some amount of contamination that needs to be screened out of that material in one way or another. So uh, we have a system that works pretty good for that. So, like I said, I think some of our systems could be scaled to any size operation. Is your understanding that this was developed because there were a handful of locals in Delaware County that really wanted to make this happen and they went out and, and made the financing work and whatnot for it? I mean, what was the the impetus for this initially in Delaware County? The impetus for it was, I mean, Delaware County took uh, ownership of its waste very early on um, in the 70s. Solid waste regulation really started coming into a reality for local municipalities. And Delaware County decided that they were going to manage their own waste. And so we cited a landfill and started operating on the site where the landfill is today. A good portion, little over half, half of our county is in the New York City watershed. And so in the late 90s, uh, New York City made some substantial investments into our wastewater treatment plants. And so they upgraded those treatment plants, uh, or they were going to upgrade those treatment plants, and they realized how much sludge we were going to have. So one of the hardest materials to handle for a landfill is sludge. Uh, so biosolids coming out of a wastewater treatment plant. And those are really high in nutrient value um, and can make a good uh, good compost out of those. Um, so we started looking into the potential of composting. So there's there's a number of other co-composting facilities around New York State. Uh, composting biosolids is very much not unique to Delaware County. When you landfill them, the, the biosolids tend to have a lot of moisture in them. And they also do not stack up very well. So landfill's uh, life is measured in its airspace. So we only have so much space for a landfill. <clears throat> so to conserve space in a landfill, um, they started looking at composting. So in order to compost biosolids, uh, like I said, they're really high in nutrients. I mean, you could think about just uh, nitrogen, for example. There's a carbon to nitrogen ratio that is advantageous for plants. Whereas if you get too much nitrogen, it's going to leach into the soil. If you have too much carbon, it's going to bind up the nitrogen and not be available for your plants. So, so to make a good compost or a good soil amendment, you need to balance the carbon and the nitrogen. So biosolids being very high in nitrogen, you need to introduce some carbon in some kind of way. Uh, other facilities, co-composting facilities around the state, they'll use um, wood chips um, and quite a bit of wood chips. Delaware County uh, realized that you could extract the carbon or the organics out of uh, common household garbage and use that as an amendment to the biosolids to facilitate that composting process and balance out that carbon to nitrogen ratio. So the inception, the, the motivation for the folks in Delaware County was is one long seated in a tradition of handling our own wastes, uh, handling our own materials um, in county. And that, and combined with the the upgrades to the wastewater treatment plants that New York City made, uh, we realized we needed to see if we could figure out something else to do with the biosolids than put them in a landfill. Because we would have closed our landfill long ago if we were just landfilling all of all of the biosolids. It would have shut us down years ago.
is Radio Chatskill, and we're listening to the WJFF podcast Close to Home with Leif Johansson talking about composting today, and he was speaking to Delaware County Solid Waste Coordinator Tyson Robb. We'll take a short break, and we'll be back more with our local composting efforts from the podcast Close to Home. You can hear that at WJFFradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Kathy Geary of Radio Catskills Now and Then, calling all unsigned local musicians. It's the 2023 Tiny Desk Contest. Just submit a video of you playing one song behind a desk of your choice by March 13th. If you win, you'll get to play your very own Tiny Desk Concert and go on tour with NPR Music. Get all the details at WJFFradio.org. This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Tim Bruno. Let's return to Leif Johansson's report on com- composting and the status of our local composting efforts. It's from his most recent episode of his WJFF podcast, Close to Home. A couple of weeks ago, I was chatting with Chrissy Walsh, the owner of Thompson Sanitation, the Sullivan. Following my conversation with Tyson, I wanted to see where Sullivan County was in its development of a composting program. If you've been listening to Close to Home for a while, you may remember an episode we did about two years ago with Bill Cutler, the then recycling coordinator for Sullivan County. And although our conversation focused more on recycling, Bill mentioned that the county was in the process of finalizing a plan for a composting program to be piloted at some point in the near future. So the initial steps will be look something like over the next couple of years, maybe the development of a a pilot residential drop-off program. So you may start to see on our social media page, Sullivan Recycles, you may see some information about green bins being set up at transfer stations. And for more information, please click here. That will get you information about how to participate in those programs in the future. We want to make sure folks have the tools up front to know what should be in that compost bin, how we're going to collect it, where we're going to collect it, what we're going to do with it when we get it. And eventually, when we get some metrics behind us with that residential pilot program, we think that's the time to start thinking about developing that permanent commercial composting facility. There are some very positive objectives uh, that have been identified in the initial plan at this point. And that plan should be finalized in the next few weeks. That will give the legislature a document to look at, something to review, to ask questions about, to really tear apart. And ultimately, it's our county legislature that will set that policy uh, for us in the future. So as a follow-up to that conversation from March 2021, I got on the phone recently with our current recycling coordinator, Cassie Thelman, to see how that compost program is progressing. I'm currently working on um, our Sullivan County Organics program. Um, we hope to be able soon to collect compost in our county. So there's a lot of paperwork that comes behind that, and um, we're still working on getting all of our approvals and permits. Uh, but we are moving forward, and we're hoping to start a pilot program with about 400 residents um, so we can really start to see what food collection will look like at the county level in Sullivan. So what's the plan for how that would work? Would the compost and, and organic items be sorted out of people's waste, or, or would this be a separate bin that people would be putting organics into that would then have to be dropped off somewhere or or picked up somehow? So currently, um, we don't accept, as you know, we don't accept organics at any of our transfer stations. Um, Currently, we are um, encouraging residents to compost at home if they have the capability to do so. With this pilot program that we're launching, we are going to provide We want to start with 400 residents, so it's something manageable for us. And we're going to provide um, at-home composting kits, which will include a countertop bucket um, and also a bigger bucket, about five or six gallons, maybe to leave in the basement or the garage. And our hope is that uh, residents will use their countertop 
buckets, fill up the uh, five or six gallon bucket, and then bring it to one of our drop-off locations at our uh, transfer stations, uh, which we have six of throughout the county. So once that takes off, we are then going to be bringing those organics out of county as as we get started. And then hopefully our long-term goal is to be able to keep the compost right in the county and make our own compost here. So so right now, residents would, would have a, two composting bins in their house, one on the countertop, one they can keep elsewhere. Then the impetus is on the residents to drop that compost off with the county and the county ships it out of the county to a larger composting uh, finishing facility. So it, it sounds like this is a, a complicated process as of right now. And, and the impetus is significantly on county residents to kind of make this happen, to maintain compost in their own homes. Are there future plans to kind of simplify that process, not just for having a large-scale composting facility in the county, but for residents as well? Sure. So, I mean, as always, if, if you have the capability to compost at home, that's the most sustainable option. So the reason we would want to have a, a drop-off location at our transfer facilities are for the people who that's just not an option for. Maybe they live in an apartment or in one of the villages and um, they're just not able to create a, a safe, workable, um, organic pile outside at their homes. So by bringing it to the landfill, we're providing more options to reduce our food waste uh, keep it out of the landfill. The reason currently we are looking to bring to Ulster County is that they have a working uh, compost collection and organics collection facility that's up and running and um, that we've all taken tours of, you know, and by we all, I mean myself and, and the individuals who work at our transfer stations. So we're hoping to use the knowledge that we gain from this experience to then bring it here in in the county. And yes, it will be a, a long-term project and it's not going to be overnight. Best way to reduce our carbon footprints is, you know, to keep our, our own waste within our county. And that is our ultimate goal. And, and that's what we're working on. What have been the initiatives and processes lately to get people to compost at their own homes? I imagine that it is really difficult to change human behavior and while I have absolutely no data to back this up, I will assume that the vast majority of Sullivan County residents do not have composting at home. That's a great question. I actually don't have any numbers on that um, off the top of my head. I might be able to, you know, that, that that's a great thing. And I would be interested in maybe doing a survey if we could do that in the county. I, I think a great way to make change in the county is well in anywhere really is to get in front of students and and young people um so a lot of what i'm trying to do is um, make connections in the school and set up different tours and presentations so that i can show students and and young individuals the importance of composting and how it can make a difference um and then i i think it's common that students bring these ideas home to their families and that's kind of how we keep it growing and, and get the knowledge out there. I also asked Cassie about the Delaware County composting program and if the future scaled up Sullivan County program might end up looking something like that. Um, currently, there's a, a lot of different talks about different options and different ways that you, not even just compost, but recycling as well can be separated. That could be a potential. I would think it's more likely that we're going to have to continue to separate our, our organics, just like um, currently if you come, even if you get your garbage picked up at your house uh, from a private hauler or if you bring it to the one of the our transfer stations, you have to separate your recyclables and your garbage. So I, I would envision that that will remain the same with compost as well. It will have to be separated. Um, but I, I'm not aware of what's going on in Delaware County, but I'm definitely going to check it out. I, I didn't know about that one, so I'm, I'm glad you brought it up so I could check that out.
So if we did scale up a composting program in Sullivan County, what might it look like? Is there a world where we have a separate bin for compost that we roll to the end of our driveways for pickup from a waste hauling company? Here's Chrissy Walsh again. Yeah, there's there's people that do do it. Um, I don't know if that's something that, you know, I would head into or not. You know, it would have to be on an as-need basis. But I know there are commercial people out there that do pick up compost waste. I've never seen them here, but um, Ulster County has quite a few companies. So what they do is they'll go to grocery stores, you know, lettuce, uh, meat scraps, that kind of thing. So they do have separate bins. They have a different, I guess, volume, right? There's more people that live there. And it's really to get the garbage out of the waste stream. Whether or not we manage to have our compost picked up at our homes or we develop a system like Delaware counties that separates organics and non-organics at a large county-run facility at some point in the future, we are still going to have to deal with the fact that most of what ends up in our waste stream now is going into trucks and getting hauled up to the Seneca Meadows landfill near Syracuse, New York for disposal. And that landfill is almost full. So I asked Cassie Thelman about what the plan is when we can't dump our trash up there anymore. We've actually, that's been a big topic of discussion these past few months um, with the legislators and within the county and the Department of Public Works. It's, it's still up in the air. We're in the process of getting together a solid waste committee. Um, so more individuals can get involved in this discussion. It's likely that Seneca Meadows will get an extension on their landfill, but, you know, you can't count on that. So we do have to come up with a solution. Are we going to ship it to Ohio or down south or up to Canada? Are we going to pay? How are we going to truck it? Are we going to put it on a train? We really have to come up with a solution. And it's a, like you said, it's a pressing matter right now with the possibility that Seneca Meadows could be closing soon. So currently the county is still working on options and different solutions. I don't think anything is off the table right now, but we really need to uh, dive deeper and figure out what we're going to do. Is your sense that if we do end up shipping to Ohio or down south or, or elsewhere further away than Seneca Meadows, that county residents would end up paying more for that service? It's very likely. And we're seeing that in other counties not just near us, but all throughout the state. Um, currently, New York State DEC is not approving any any new permits for landfills in New York State. So as locations like Seneca Meadows are closing, other counties are experiencing an increase in costs, and it is likely that we will have to increase our tipping fees as, you know, the further away that we bring our garbage, the more expensive it is going to be to our residents in the county. While it's obviously a step in the right direction that Sullivan County is putting in the legwork to encourage composting and it's developing a long-term composting plan, here's my concern. When we think about this through the lens of behavioral economics, what's less costly to us? Setting up and maintaining a two-stage indoor composting system and occasionally driving its contents over to a transfer station for pickup so it can be hauled to a different county for processing, or just throwing our food scraps in the trash. Even though many of us might be inclined to argue that it is the morally right thing to do to participate in Sullivan County's proposed composting program, and aside from the carbon footprint of hauling the compost to Ulster County, it probably is, my guess is that it will ultimately get minimal buy-in. And because of that, we'll all lose out and the cost of disposing our waste will increase as we send it further and further afield once Seneca Meadows does close in Syracuse. My other concern here is the time frame of all of this. When I talked to Bill Cutler two years ago, he also told me about how the county is developing a pilot plan for a compost program. And I get it, there is a bunch of bureaucracy 
to go through to launch something like this. But to hear a similar response now as I did two years ago does feel disheartening. And as time goes on, I'm hoping that we'll see more collaboration with our neighbors in Delaware County as well on composting. Because these are urgent problems, and the less waste we ship to Syracuse or Ohio or down south, the smaller our carbon footprint is, and the more money we save as a community. Thank you so much to Chrissy Walsh, Tyson Robb, and Cassie Thelman for taking time out of their busy days to chat on today's program, and as always, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. If you're enjoying this program and you want to hear more, you can always find all of our episodes wherever you get your podcasts, or at wjffradio.org. And thanks to Lake Johansson for that episode. Uh, that's all for this edition of Radio Chat Skill. But before we go, a program reminder. Tonight we have a new local music show debuting tonight at 7. It's called Liberation Station, and it's produced and hosted by Callison Stratton. She's joining us on the phone now. Callison, hi. Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks for, for doing this. We're excited. Can you tell folks about the show? Yeah. Um, so the show Liberation Station kind of got uh, my I sort of you know, banging around in my head for a long time of uh, wanting to do an all-women, all-femme um, musician uh, show because, you know, I, I I read this article a while ago that was, you know, was mostly focused on country music on the radio, but I think it applies to all music um, on, that's featured on the radio that um, even though women are not disproportionate at all in the music industry, they are disproportionately played less on the radio. And so, you know, I try to pull from a lot of different genres. Um, I kind of try to cover a lot of ground, find something that a lot of different people will enjoy, and then also bring in some musicians that people might not have heard of, a lot of uh, new artists that are sort of coming up in the industry right now. I like what you said about this as your uh, little attempt to adjust the balance of representation on the radio. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, you know, it's one hour per week, but, you know, any any little bit helps. It's a start, yeah. And, can you, can you yeah. tell us, uh, you're a singer-songwriter yourself, um, can you tell yeah. us about some of the, the musicians that you have on tonight and how they, how, how they inspire you? Absolutely. Um, so the first half of the show, um, it's an hour long, and the first half hour is very much like very close to my heart because it's all folk and uh, country singer-songwriters. Um, we'll start off with Alison Krauss and Jillian Welsh. Um, and tonight's show, because it's the start of Women's History Month, yep. we are doing all duos and collaborations, uh, super groups and girl groups, because, you know, I liked the idea of ladies supporting ladies as a way to start off Women's History Month. Um, so, yeah, so I've got a lot of uh, sort of a folk country sound for the first half hour. And then for the second half hour, uh, we're going to do a little bit more of like a rock and pop. So I've got Sharon Van Etten and Angel Olsen. Um, I also have uh, The Breeders, which was a, um, a like punk rock band that was formed out of uh, the Pixies, uh, Kim Deal. And, uh, and then we've also got, uh, Madison Cunningham and, um, uh, Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus and Julian Baker's collaboration, Boy Genius. They just released a new EP, which I was waiting for for a very long time. So it was very exciting to be able to play, yeah. uh, their new, one of their new singles, um, on the show as well. Right. So, you know, it'll kind of run the gamut. We're starting mm-hmm. off with, uh, you know, very folksy, lots of those beautiful, like three part harmonies. Mm-hmm got um the dolly parton emmylou harris linda ronstadt trio makes an appearance yeah um yeah well, so, well and and yeah, we'll, we'll be listening great. we'll be listening that's that's liberation station it debuts tonight at seven with callison stratton callison thanks so much for joining us and uh good luck with the show thank you so much listen in <laughs> all right that's uh all for us right now i'm tim bruno farm and country is next thanks for listening
Support for Radio Catskill comes from Custom by Sullivan Mercantile. Home and office textile decor. Carefully conceived, thoughtfully designed, and locally built with skill. Available online at sullivan-mercantile.com. From the Hurleyville Performing Arts Center. Celebrating the environmental and social diversity of the Catskill region through performance, film, and visual art. HurleyvilleArtsCenter.org And from listeners like you who donate at WJFFRadio.org WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. You're listening to Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania.